0: Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot, grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. This conversation was recorded in October of 2019 with Adam Sachs, who I learned about from a 2009 Grist blog post titled, The Fallacy of Climate Activism. I was so impressed with that Post that I recorded it, he has several other fabulous uh, posts on Grist, The Climate Solution Got Cows, We Have Met the Deniers and They Are Us, and Dispassion as the World Ends, The Absent Heart of the Great Climate Affair. Now, Adam is the Executive Director of the Biodiversity for a Livable Climate, and he's one of the uh, more important Regeneration voices in this series. We had fun, I think you'll enjoy it. Adam, it's a delight to have you uh, as part of this series. I only became aware of you maybe uh, two months ago. Somebody forwarded me, uh, I think it was a 2009 Grist article that you did, uh, The Fallacy of Climate Activism. And when I read it, I thought, oh my gosh, this is totally (laughs) post-doom. (laughs) <laughs> at least as I'm thinking about that term. And um, so for those people who are not already familiar with you or your work, um, at the start here, if you could just, even before getting into sort of more your story, but just uh, help people get you, help people understand uh, a little bit uh, sort of who you are, what you bring to the world, and what you're particularly passionate about or interested in or involved in.
1: I am a pre-baby boomer by one year. Born in 1945. That gives me 74 planetary years so far. And I grew up in a very doomy age. It was post-atomic conflagration. Mm -hmm. And I grew up during the years when we were hiding under, under school desks, just in case another bomb came along. Yep. And I was mightily impressed with the uh, silliness of, of that whole thing. <laughs> and, and that really uh, kind of set, set my stage in a lot of ways. I had a lot of trouble in school because I didn't like or trust what my teachers were telling me.
0: Hang on, hang on just a second, Adam. Before you go into your story, because I really want you to spend a lot of time on that, just, yeah, in a short form, just help people who are just coming to this know who you are, like what, what, what you do so in right the world.
1: Now, right now, I'm the executive director of a nonprofit that I co-founded in 2013 called Biodiversity for a Livable Climate. Yeah. And our mission as originally stated was to restore ecosystems to reverse global warming, and at that point, the power of nature to affect all kinds of things in the world, in particular climate but as I've learned since, the climate is is a symptom of global eco destruction and by just addressing climate, we cut out many solutions. And the solutions we now uh, maintain are nature solutions. They are the restoration of ecosystems which draw down carbon dioxide, of course. And we also would say that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and oceans are a symptom of the eco-destruction.
0: Yeah, ecological and, overshoot as Catton would talk about.
1: The ecological overshoot. And in fact, um, there are some scientists who believe that the, that carbon symptom began with the first plow cracking the soil and exposing it to oxidation in the atmosphere. So bio for climate our, our our short theme, um, has been doing a, a lot of educational activity on behalf of eco restoration in general. We don't have any projects specifically on the ground ourselves, but we report on such projects uh, on our Facebook page. And we've had 12 conferences to date that have had speakers from all over the world and we have over 200 videos of those speakers um, that have been viewed over 170,000 times on YouTube. So we're having an influence. How much impact? I don't know, but we hear from people from all over the world who say, oh my gosh, we, we didn't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I wanted to uh, piggyback on is, is that sense that those of you, such as you and your organization, who are on the front lines of uh, ecological restoration, regeneration... Um, you know, building topsoil, sequestering carbon, planting trees, moving trees further north that need to be that need to migrate faster than other animals can move them. That's something my wife is very into. Mm-hmm. My hunch is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my hunch is that it's been a painful shift over the over the recent years because most of us I've been involved in deep ecology and bioregionalism since mm-hmm. the late 1980s. And Thomas Berry and Brian Swim, uh, Mm -hmm. major mentors, as well as Joanna Macy and Mm -hmm. Teddy Goldsmith and then uh, William Catton, and definitely William Ophels as well. And it's, it's like those of you who have been doing this work in restoration, I would imagine at some point went from genuinely believing that because these are so obviously from an ecological standpoint, our only ways into the future... Believed that it was going to be enough to transform this the situation, even the tagline of, of your your uh, your project. And I'm imagining that for many of you, if not all of you, something shifted in recent years that you still know it's the only way into the future, but there's um, a, a lot less confidence or collapse of confidence that it will be enough that this body of work and body of practice will be enough to, you know, save industrialism from the consequences of its own acts, or you know avoid hitting the wall or whatever metaphor you want to use yeah
1: i don't Um, i don't i don't think saving industrialism is is a goal on my list
0: yeah no i'm sure it's not
1: (laughs) i think i enjoy the fruits of industrialism as poisoned as they are while they're here here we are Mm -hmm. using them right now exactly to improve all kinds of things we hope but the um What tripped us up, I think, is represented by Mike Mann's hockey stick curve, right? And and we visibly hit the inflection point in a dramatic way a couple of years ago, i.e., we got to the point in the exponential curve where the acceleration started to kick in and then take off. the problem with that curve is that it relies on mostly visible or detectable accelerations. And the problem with the accelerations is they start accelerating long before they're visible or detectable. Exactly. So they, they kind of clunk us on the head and it's like, oh, this is happening all of a sudden. Well, it really isn't, I remember earlier on in this millennium you don't get too many chances to say something like that (laughs) but earlier on in this millennium in 2005 a paper was published critiquing um the international efforts and the scientific efforts and the ipcc was kind of in its adolescence at that point um that's the intergovernmental panel on climate change the scientific body that that examines the the literature and the discoveries. And it's played by the fact that it's a consensus. It's a consensus process. So it really leaves out some of the more difficult stuff. But this paper um, noted that the models have left out the acceleration, the exponentiation that's at play in feedback loops. The models left them out. The modelers left them out because they were too difficult to model. Right. But there wasn't even a fudge factor. And so um, the the place in the hockey stick curves where, where where the stick becomes the the driving part of the hockey stick, just, it was hard to put your finger on that. And so, even post doomers like me, that's a new term for me, by the way. Uh, sure, so sure. Playing sure. with it here. Post doomers like me were, were surprised, were yes. blindsided by that. I mean, I've, over the past two years, I knew this was coming, you know, in a sense, but I had no idea. It would be happening as soon as and as quickly as it is.
0: Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you to push a little bit further into that because how do you understand your work, biodiversity for a livable climate, and um, how do you understand how has it shifted, if at all? in a world where now we're aware that um, there are certain aspects of abrupt climate change that seem to have been ongoing now for some time. It's not like it might happen in the future, right. but we're living in that kind of a world. So how do you understand your work and how have you framed your work in light of that?
1: Well, I think the, the big transition is that the future is now. It's not out there anymore, it's not 2050, it's not 2100, it's not even 2035, it's now. And at one plus a little degrees centigrade, global average temperature increase, it's going wild. It's chaotic. People talking about two degrees centigrade being a a safe marker, it's completely nuts. 1.5 Right. 1.5 degrees is completely nuts. Right. we 1.1 one, 1. 1 or so, and everything is going crazy. And it's going crazy in this feedback loop way, right. and a feedback loop is self-perpetuating until it runs out of feedstock. Yes. So we'll keep doing this feedback in forests, burning up and putting more carbon in the atmosphere, and making it warmer, and that'll keep going until there are no more forests to burn. So, feedback loops do have a built-in endpoint, but the endpoints are catastrophic.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. So. I'm curious, I want to ask you about sort of your longer story in coming to yeah. this. But before even there, just anything about the language, you mentioned post-doom sort of characterizes, but it's sort of new. Like, how do you describe, what language do you typically find yourself using in terms of these contracting, cascading times and what's unfolding, what's likely in the pretty near future?
1: Oh, exponential, catastrophic, disruptive. Um, I mean, there are lots of... Uh, spine chilling <laughs> words out there that in some ways we become inured to, so they don't s- chill the spine. Oh yeah, it's catastrophic, that, uh, and I'll take two pizzas. <laughs> right? um, but back to your prior question for a moment, and that's what, what has changed in the way we represent what we're yes. talking about. That's a real tough one Yeah, because our role in large part is to be hopeful. And when we had our first conference, there was lots of doom and gloom in the audience when people first got there. And two and a half days later, when they were leaving, they were saying, oh my God, this is amazing. It's so hopeful. Why didn't somebody tell us? It's going to be hard to pull that off. This year,
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, even your subtitle, restoring ecosystems to reverse global warming.
1: We've got to change that. I got pushback from my board. Yeah. We really need to change that because there is no reversal.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Of, of global warming. That and yet affect-
0: restoring ecosystems. If, if any remnant of humanity survives this bottleneck, yeah. that's our holy work as to restore that's ecosystems.
1: Right. Exactly. So, um, It's always moving forward Um, and that's one of the things about the universe and thermodynamics, it's always moving forward and it's moving forward towards disorder, but that would take many, many billions of years to fulfill if if the theory holds. Um, So you can't reverse, but you can go to a new place that is satisfactory and and perhaps even even better in ways. I came to ecology and the natural world relatively late. Uh, I was an undergraduate dance major, and I went to graduate school in counseling and education. And then I decided, hey, I really want to be a doctor. So I took the pre-med courses and much to my astonishment because I'd hated science in high school and I went to the Bronx High School of Science, wow. which tells you something, I'm yeah. not sure what. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was really, really good at it. I got all, all A's except for, except for organic chemistry. <laughs> uh, there was only one A in that class and there was one B and I got the B. But <laughs> I, was, I was generally very good at science and scientific thinking, and so I decided to go to medical school. I wound up going to a naturopathic medical school the Bastyr, currently Bastyr University in Seattle. When I was there, it was a classroom at Seattle Community College, but it's grown much in the past 40 years, and I thought I wanted to be a healer. As it turns out, I really wasn't very good at it, I was good at the science part, but um, I didn't like dealing with people who weren't feeling well. They get cranky and <laughs> boring and that, that's right. that's entirely unfair. Right. But there's an element of truth to it. And, and it, it was um, kind of a misunderstanding of my own nature that led me to that. I wanted to want it, but I didn't really want it. Mm -hmm. However, the experience there was great. And I spent hundreds of hours in the University of Washington Medical Library doing all kinds of research. And um, I graduated and I practiced for a few years and it just was not a good mix. And that was in the late 80s when high tech was coming on and I uh, decided I wanted to play with computers such as they were um, from Radio Shack, may it rest in peace. And, <laughs> and so I did that for a bit and I got pretty good at that too. I became a database developer. I'd, I did that for 10 years. And all the while, my interest and awareness of the natural world kind of grew. I was also a photographer. I had been since I was a kid. That was mm-hmm. my first first passion. And so I mostly did pictures of buildings because I grew up in New York City, mm-hmm. but I also went out into nature more. So I was gradually coming to the natural world. And around the year 2000, 1999, 2000, I met Ross Gelbspan, who, it was one of the first yeah. journalists and authors to write about climate. Yeah. He wrote a book in the nineties called the heat is on. And it became uh, a bit of an item because Bill Clinton was a spied reading it during one of his summers in, in uh, Martha's Vineyard. So I met Ross at a talk that he gave and, um, we kind of hit it off and I asked him if it, if anybody had ever done a, a movie about global warming. And he said, no, not that he knew of. Although Soylent Green was about global warming. <laughs> and that's a whole other story. Right, Actually a remarkable movie, even though it was pretty hokey, except for Edward G. Robinson, who was, it was his final performance and it was something else. Wow. Uh, but, Ross and I agreed to do a movie together, which was interesting for me because I'd never done a movie. I had no idea how, I mean, I was a still photographer. And at that point, a machine to work as a nonlinear editor or NLE as they're called, uh, cost $6,000 and it crashed every, every other edit. But I managed to pull a movie out of it and, um, What's it? What was the title? Are you ready for this? Of course. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> it was called "Global Warming." You ain't seen nothing yet. Okay, good. And I um, interviewed people in the street in New York and Boston and asked them what they thought about global warming. And actually, some of their responses will surprise you. And I also interviewed Ross and videotaped uh, a lecture that he gave at Simmons College in around 2000. Mm -hmm. And nobody bought the movie. It (laughs) turned out okay for a bungling amateur, but there was something very striking about it, which relates to your comment about my 2009 fallacy of climate activism article, and that is, could have made it today.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: And the few details would be different, but by and large, it's the same movie today. And that kind of led me to want to dig into anthropology and certain kinds of history. Aside from Bill Catton, who I first read I think Oh, around 2011, might have been, no, it might have been earlier than that, about uh, 2008-ish. Um, a major influence on my understandings was the collapse of complex societies by Joseph Tainter.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Who was an archaeologist um, at Utah State, I think it was, and in 1980, he became dissatisfied with the conventional explanations of why civilizations collapse. yes, And he embarked upon a research effort. So up until that time, the discussions of civilizational collapse were mostly from historians and, and other kinds of literary writers. Mm-hmm. And he took a scientific perspective. that. Because the historical and literary explanations didn't really make a a lot of sense to him. Mm -hmm. So he came up with a theory, partly based on economics, Mm -hmm. in which there's a phenomenon called marginal return. And that essentially is energy in versus energy out, Mm -hmm. or E-R-O-I, as it's now sometimes called, energy return on investment. And the theory is that if you have a certain return on whatever energy you spend on something, like growing food, for Mm -hmm. example, because the energy for the food itself is free, that's from the sun, but there's a lot of energy involved in other aspects of farming. If you have, a situation where you put more than, um, where the cost of the energy investment is less than 10 to one. In other words, if you put 10 times more energy into it than you get out, right. then you're doing okay. But if you put 20 times more energy in than you get out, it's not so good and it's unsustainable, let alone a hundred times. So when we started harvesting fossil oil, which was helped save the whales for a while, Mm -hmm. and brought all kinds of amenities like electrical, electrical utilities that could actually pump out a large quantity of uh, energy, Um, if when you first got that energy, you you plunked a pipe into the ground, and this huge gusher came up, so you had a huge return on your energy investment. And now, as is pretty well known, that energy investment to get the energy out gets pricier pricier and pricier and pricier, and that was um, reflected in Hubbard's curve, where he had this huge peak of, of energy availability, and it declines. Now, even, even though the extraction of that energy becomes more, let's see, say, um, aggressive, not more efficient, but more right. aggressive, so we can keep pretending for a while longer, it still is gonna hit a wall. It's still gonna hit the point of overshoot Mm -hmm. and exceeding carrying capacity and all of that. So that was kind of my evolution Mm -hmm. through uh, Painter and Bill Catton and people like Bill Reese who's a co Inventor of the ecological footprint, yeah, and uh, and many others. I mean, Jared Diamond is in there somewhere, although I think he's kind of behind the curve. Yeah, a bit, but he certainly is a good writer and very perceptive in many ways.
0: Did you did you ever read uh, Walter Youngquist's Geo Destinies along these no, lines? No, I didn't. Yeah, it's another sort of classic book. Uh, the the yeah. subtitle is uh, the uh, um, the. Hold on, I've got it right here the inevitable control of earth resources over nations and individuals. Um, Geodestinies. Yeah. It's actually, uh, I'm part of a team that are, there'll be a new edition. It was published in 2000. I mean, in 1997, but it was considered so important to so many people that, uh, uh, Walter, before he died, worked on a revision for like nine or 10 years. So we're going to have that published here within the next few right. months. Yeah. Well, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how has your understanding of human nature, uh, you know, what, what's your, or how's your sense of the, the inborn human strengths and limitations? How does that, uh, affect your interpretation of societal or cultural deterioration. And I was, could this descent have been avoided if we'd have made different turns? I mean, how's your sense of history and, and if there were any, if onlys, if only humanity had chosen this or not chosen this path, or has your sense of the past sort of r- been more along the lines of inevitability once you've got toolmaking and symbolic language?
1: I think it's more along the lines of inevitability And I think Tainter uh, makes a good case for that because it's the collapse of complex societies. It's not the collapse of human culture. It's not the collapse of hunter gatherers or small tribes. It's the collapse of complex societies. And to me, the fundamental piece is that we evolved as small group animals. Yes. And we work fine in groups of 20 or 30. I don't know about much larger than that. It depends upon the circumstances. Right. Some societies get to be somewhat larger than that. But at some point, social relationships break down because we are small group animals. So when we get too big, we start to stratify. We maintain our small groupness, but some of the strata are wealthier or stronger or smarter or something,
0: or learn to better. gain the system
1: well yeah that that could be that's that's a pretty complex um, socio cultural right. point there but We always, as we get to form larger groups, we always create these structures mm-hmm. and we distance one tribe distances itself from another tribe and the tribes identify in one way or another. It could be accent, it could be skin color, mm-hmm. it could be any of a number of characteristics, but there is my group and everybody else. and we make those distinctions, and they um, they get more dramatic until um, we have what you see today in all over the world i mean certainly yeah. in the United States and we try to fix it, and we should try to fix it, but that is going against our our biological inheritance and i I think that there are there are many biological imperatives that that uh, prevail whatever we try to do and that those are part of our evolutionary heritage mm-hmm. so we can't change those and and if you for me thinking in those terms creates a whole different set of solutions so we have a meme now about the evil corporations and the evil energy companies and evil whatevers. And the only option that we have, the only option in a pretty small solution set is to get rid of them, uh, maybe tame them in some instances, but is to get rid of them. And, a reframing, a new paradigm for thinking about this opens a whole lot more in terms of solution sets. And for me, with climate and eco-destruction, what opens up is restoration and regeneration of life support systems around the planet. But that's invisible, for example, in the global warming equals greenhouse gases paradigm.
0: Right, of course. Yeah, I mean... I've come to the place in this post-doom context of that the work of regeneration, the work of uh, soil restoration, um, uh, forest restoration, wetlands restoration, um, all the different ways that we have of working with the forces of nature, the forces of reality. And in some cases, Furthering the restoration aspects of the living world at a faster rate than it would happen without us is holy work, whether we go extinct uh, in the next 50 years uh, because of rapid self-reinforcing tipping points uh, around the Arctic and methane and stuff like that. Um, or if we last another two or three million years before an asteroid or super volcano or whatever takes us out, it seems to me that that's that's soul-nourishing work, that's pro-future, life-giving work, um, regardless of how successful we'll be at various scales.
1: Agreed, and the way I like to put that is that one really good thing about being human is you never know anything for sure. So... No matter how bad it looks, if you've got something that you think has a chance, do it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that leads me to actually, I'm going to, in what I sent you in the email, this is, was the last question, but I'm going to ask it now, which is, I'm curious, what's your sense of what's beyond our control and where we still can make a difference individually and or collectively? In other words, um, what's your sense of what's no longer possible, but what still is possible?
1: I think we're in a lot of trouble. And I think that it's still possible that we're able to relate to the natural world in such a way that, that we heal the current episode, that the, the biogeophysical episode that the planet is going through. And the primary obstacle is human behavior. And that's a huge obstacle. I went to a Global Landscapes Forum conference at the UN a week ago Saturday. And for the first time in all the years I've been doing climate work, which is almost 20, I I was in a room with 400 people from around the world, from every habitable continent, who are doing this kind of regenerative work. And it's truly stunning what people are doing. So we talk about how greenhouse gases create this impossible habitat. And yet there are people who are taking these impossible habitats and growing things on them again. And the green things and opening up the ground to water and the photosynthesis life ha- has an extraordinary drive to continue so yes. what they do cools the biosphere it protects the soil and provides economic and 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 barter opportunities for people in villages all over the world It works mostly on a small scale. Uh, Large scale has the same problems that complex society have. Right. But we can scale it up, not by taking a hundred acre farm and turning it into a hundred thousand acre farms, but taking a hundred acre farm and turning it into a thousand hundred acre farms. And that's important also because it emphasizes, of necessity emphasizes the relationship of people to the life support system, to their lands and to their plants and the animals. And that's in a way that cannot happen from a corporate boardroom. Mm -hmm. And therein lies the hope. We're having a conference in April of 2020 called Blessed Unrest, which is the title of a book that Paul Hawken wrote in 2007, in which he describes the the thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people who are doing this kind of positive, earth positive, climate positive, people positive work all over the world. Mm nobody knows about anybody else, right? because they're in their own little corner doing it on a small scale, which is as it should be. And he says it's the largest movement in history that nobody's ever heard of because it's scattered. But I will say this for the internet is that it brings this scattering or brings the possibility of unscattering together of collaborations, not so much because six organizations or individuals from around the world need to work together on the land, but because it's a reinforcement of stories, of good and hopeful stories. And of course, stories are our our currency. And what we're hoping to do is bring some of these blessed unrestors from various parts of the world and, and show people that this is happening and how it's happening. It's happening via Small is Beautiful. And we can do this everywhere, but we really have to get on it right away. Um, you can look at Houston during Hurricane Harvey And that's where size matters. It's immovable and unmanageable because the floodplain is completely covered with concrete and asphalt and and human civilization. And as I said at a lecture once, I told people I have a surprise quiz for you. And that is, what do floodplains always do? (laughs) right and then people laughed and then i said why is that so hard for politicians and developers to understand
0: right yeah i mean jimmy carter back in the 1970s wanted it to be uh that if you if your house is lost on a barrier island or whatever to a hurricane you you get the money for it but you don't build back there that's not where houses should be built
1: right right
0: unfortunately and of course
1: none of this should be paved over, which of course also raises a huge problem for the society as currently structured, constructed. And, and that's the big challenge. Again, it's the, it's the human challenge. But I will say also that things are accelerating in the world of feedbacks. And there is currently a lot of methane activity in the Arctic. And there's enough methane there, in theory at least, to double the carbon burden in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So we'd be over 800 parts per million of carbon and higher than that in carbon equivalents. And that would clearly be the end. We, 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 can, we can manage with the current state how much farther beyond this state, Right, we don't know.
0: If you were to talk to somebody in their retirement years and somebody who's in their say 20s or 30s, sort of those ends of the spectrum, or maybe even younger, what do you say to somebody who says, you know, is there any hope? I mean, I, I see hope as sort of a neutral term. There's some liquids that'll kill you, some liquids that'll, that will uh, sustain you, um, and a hope is like that. There are certain things that we can hope in that will just continue to have us live in a colossal way in a way that's destructive of everything we humans depend upon
1: and and And, by the way the same liquid that sustains you can also kill you
0: that's that's true too exactly um so so you know how has that been for you because doing a conference on blessed unrest and on power down i mean these are such important resources that point people in in an inspiring way to what's real that we don't normally pay attention to. And yet, um, you know, there may have been hope prior to to power down coming out that it would have a truly global, massive impact. And that hasn't been the case yet. Um, And so how do you deal with that emotionally?
1: Did you read my other piece in grist? I had four altogether, but there was one called, uh, dispassion as the World Ends.
0: No, ab- I did not read that one. Dispassion mm-hmm. as the World Ends.
1: The Absent Heart of the Great Climate Affair. Okay. So that's how I was trying to deal with it in 2009. And it's very difficult to deal with. Um, I you know we, we've been talking to people on and off throughout the years and then in the past year or so, uh, or, or, well, yeah, most, mostly pretty recent. We're seeing. Um, psychiatrist, a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist, uh, has been trying to get the psychiatric society to talk about climate and climate grief, and is finally having yeah. some success. And she works with children a lot, um, but it's it's been a tough. A tough road to hoe. And nobody really knows how do you deal with climate grief. You go to a psychiatrist and you're talking about personal grief, and there's there's right. an arc there where there's at least a theoretically visible point where you've dealt with your grief. Um and when the the source of the grief is is this extraordinarily huge and there is no light at the end of the tunnel um, I don't know I mean I've never dealt with a terminal illness and I think people who have could speak to that better but it's not just a personal termination it's a societal and species termination And for reasons that I don't understand, that has a very different impact, different emotional impact. Uh, I'm gonna die no matter what, you're gonna die no matter what, we all are, and we know that. And that's different from knowing that everything we love is also going to die. Yes. And we're we're fumbling our way through it. And uh, we go to events with Extinction Rebellion and with the Sunrise Movement, which is a, mm-hmm. a youth movement, Extinction Rebellion is, um, is more age mm-hmm. variable. And we're all, everybody's struggling with that as far as yeah. I can tell, uh, even the Buddhists.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things that motivated me and Connie to really undergo this conversation series on post-doom <laughs> Uh, conversations exploring overshoot grief, gratitude and grounding. One of the things that motivated us is was the writings of people like Catherine Ingram and Barbara Cecil and Darjamel and Truthout and Jem Bendel and Paul Schaferka and others. Uh, and then that's why it was a delight to find your Fallacy of Climate Activism 2009 piece, which is along similar lines. Um, because I think we're gonna, we're already seeing the greatest uh, mental health crisis in, per, you know, in human history, that's yeah. already unfolding. Yeah. And uh, a lot Not of the- just teachers, because of climate. Right, no, exactly, Whole, all aspects of overshoot and resource yeah. exhaustion and everything else. And so how to, how to support people in this process is, it's a new work. I mean, I remember back about four or five years ago when I read John Michael Greer's little book called Not the Future We Ordered, um, and it was on peak oil, mostly, also some climate, mm-hmm. but it was mostly written for counselors, therapists, ministers, priests, rabbis, yeah. but basically those in the psychological and spiritual helping profession to do their own work of grieving, you know, and then coming to the place of acceptance and then really engaged action in whatever ways can give you life and, and that are soul nourishing and, and that are
1: pro-future. I think we can look to societies that have, collapsed before, for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. um, there's certainly, you know, there's the trail of tears and what the Native Americans went through massively from a most mysterious source. It wasn't that the European invaders were, were causing the extent of the genocide, it was all from mysterious, invisible uh, and unknown microbial participants in that whole process. And what did they go through? How did they deal with it? Yeah. I think that would be really instructive. How do societies that are in front of a war machine um, like Nazi Germany or a war machine like the Americans in Iraq, I mean, how do they deal? with their grief in uh, advance of the perceived doom.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the essays that I recorded and posted up to my uh, post-doom soul nourishment playlist on, on uh, SoundCloud was uh, written by Roy Scranton uh, called Lessons from a Genocide Can Prepare Humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, And it's right along the lines of what you're talking about yep well, adam uh, i'm curious sort of just in beginning to wind down how, how has an understanding of mortality the naturalness the the inevitability the necessariness of mortality and death impermanence has that supported you at all i mean what have been some of the resources or tools or practices or exercises that have uh, helped you wake up each morning uh, to do the work that you do without being sort of overwhelmed or paralyzed by all of the depressing challenges.
1: What makes you think I'm not overwhelmed or paralyzed?
0: (laughs) Well, that's true, I guess.
1: (laughs) gotta watch out for those assumptions yeah right exactly exactly
0: well i do want to mention anybody watching this or listening to this please do watch my conversation with uh, amy lewis Rao and laura schmidt they're the good grief good grief network girls they uh two young millennials that have started an organization called the good grief network that's all designed to help people in small groups uh really process this together so uh, i recommend that conversation and that network
1: well, the, the interesting thing about that, or an interesting thing about that for me, having done some of that processing, and then the group is over and you go home. And then what? You go to another group next week? I mean, I meditate every day and that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I mentioned to you in an email, um, I, there was a time um, 25 years ago when I was studying Ian Stevenson's work and he's a a physician at the, he was at the University of Virginia Medical School who spent, he was a psychiatrist and he spent uh, the last, oh, 35, 40 years of his life studying reincarnation as a scientist. And he developed a methodology for doing that. And it was, he wrote a book called um, 20, uh, 20 Studies uh, Indicative of Reincarnation, something like that. And it was a really boring book. <laughs> you wouldn't think that stories about reincarnation would be boring. And they're not. But he, in, intentionally made it as dry and scientific sounding as he could because he knew what he was up against in the scientific community he developed a rigorous methodology for doing this and i could say more about it if you like but the the ultimate outcome for me was that I found it very reassuring.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's it's in,
1: li- it's in line with the Buddhist reincarnational kind of thing and uh, lots of other spiritual perspectives. But for me, it's very comforting to know that when this body goes, it's not the end of consciousness. It's not the end of awareness. And it's not the end of adventure. And in some ways I look forward to dying not because it will be so miserable here, but if it is or when it is, I'd look forward to it even more but i 'm curious
0: yeah i mean it 's interesting because because i 'm interviewing and having conversations with such a wide variety of thought leader leaders and activists and, and what have you i 'm um, always fascinated with what what worldview perspectives Uh, Either beliefs or intuitions or sort of philosophical or worldview constructs um, are practically true, that are inspiring. They're useful, that if you act as if it's true, you experience fruit in your life. And um, it seems to me that whether somebody in one tradition believes in reincarnation or somebody believes in sort of resurrection or, you Mm -hmm. know, all these are different ways of conceptualizing what happens to us. Um, when we die. And
1: And I would also offer the possibility that these aren't different ways of us conceptualizing it. These are different manifestations of an underlying reality that we're not very closely in touch with in our daily lives.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I agree. I mean, to my mind, one of the most important things for sustainability Is a deep, intimate, personal, humble relationship to time and nature. Uh, A continuity with the past, the ancestors, a continuity with the descendants, even including our non human descendants uh, into the far future. And a sense of a nested sense of self, a nested sense of reality that who I am, it doesn't stop with this skin, but it's part of this larger body of life. And however that's mythologized or conceptualized or philosophized, there's lots of different ways of experiencing, not just thinking about our profound interrelatedness and interconnectedness. And that something continues when this, in the same way that, you know, the cells in my body die, but Michael continues to live. So I'm, uh, I'm a real, I found David Sloan Wilson, the evolutionary theorists distinction between practical truth and factual truth and that practical truth will outcompete factual truth any day, evolutionarily speaking, and practical truth are those things that when you act as if they're true, you experience personal wholeness, social coherence, and ecological integrity, and your life works, and your
1: culture works. Um, and, and factual truth can be pretty elusive.
0: And it can be pretty deadly if it's and not in service, yeah. right, and if it's yes. not in service to the larger body. If it's yeah. all about continuing to, uh, to further our sense of control over primary reality, then it's probably suicidal. Or, or
1: well, and that's analogous to a problem that we run into all the time. And that is reductionist science versus system science mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the understanding that there are no such things as isolated variables, except maybe in our laboratories or in our equations. Yes, And that looking at a complex system and the earth is probably one of the most complex systems in the universe, if not the most because of living things. Yeah. If you look at it as a set of, of parts, you'll, you'll never see it. And that's exactly. what Jim Lovelock did so well when he developed his Gaia theory for which he was much maligned for many years until everybody started realizing that what he said was, was right on.
0: Yeah, Lynn Margulis was one of my most significant female mentors, and um, and Teddy Goldsmith, while I never met him, his book, uh, The Stable Society, and then his magnum opus, The Way, An Ecological Worldview,
1: uh-huh. were
0: uh, profoundly influential for me on this whole difference between systemic ecological thinking um, and linear um, uh, uh, reductionistic
1: yeah. thinking. Yeah, you know. yep.
0: Wow. Well, Adam, any things that you would like to say in conclusion? Anything to feel complete in this conversation? And then where do people go to learn more about your, your work?
1: Well, um, thank you. And, si- oh, and, and, and since, yeah.
0: I'm, since I'm encouraging people to read uh, your Grist essay, even though it was written 10 years ago, it's just so current, The Fallacy of Climate Activism, if you want to just say a little bit of something about that.
1: Well, the fallacy of climate activism is right along what we were just saying. And that fallacy is that it's not just about greenhouse gases and it may not even be primarily about greenhouse gases. There's no doubt that they induce warming of the biosphere and it's a lucky thing they do, otherwise we'd be a dead planet. But it's not the only story when looking at global warming and eco-destruction. There are so many complex factors acting on one another Mm -hmm. in ways we don't understand. So Alan Savory, uh, who developed holistic plan, grazing, holistic management, and discovered that grasslands and grazing animals actually need each other. Exactly. Obviously the grazing animals need the grasses, but the grasses need the grazing animals just as much. So either one without the other will die out and they co-evolved over 25 to 40 million years. Mm -hmm. We need to look at at those systems and treat them as systems. And what Alan said was, we will never understand all the complexities in an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But we will understand, we do understand how to manage them. We can look at the manifestations. And of course he was a brilliant land manager and tracker and ecosystem um, expert. And so he knew a lot about that. And a lot of people do know a lot about the way a land, a piece of land is behaving. And how to how to maximize its productivity. And nature loves to maximize productivity in a way that works mm-hmm. for in a biodiverse way that works. And that's that's where we have to go. Mm-hmm. We don't need yeah. to understand all the interactions.
0: Right.
1: Just the outcomes.
0: And, and coming back to the question that I, I threw out in the middle of this conversation, uh, but we went in a different direction. Um, if you were to sort of speak just briefly to somebody in their retiring years, what would be like your core um, advice or input or you know, coaching or counsel, and then a young person?
1: Well, to the elder person, I would say, help the kids. Um, I don't know about most people my age, but my energy level isn't what it used to be. And the kids have that energy. They also, when I started working with them, I thought, okay, great. Here's a group of people that are going to be more open to, to restoring the living world as Holistic approach to the challenges we're facing. And they were just into emissions reductions and alternative energy, which has problems of its own. Right. And it took a while for them to start to understand what the natural world is doing and how powerful it is. And they're still, by and large, not there yet. But an extraordinary number of things have happened in these past two accelerating years, and they are much more open to it now. But help them make the transition to a nature-based perspective mm-hmm. on all of these issues, because we're never gonna get there if we just deal with carbon and greenhouse gas emissions. The, the healing has to be much deeper and broader than that. Yes so that's what I would say if you're an elder person and if you're a rich elder person, you can donate to us and <laughs> help us continue this work it's not uh, It's not a great time for nonprofit fundraising, particularly mm-hmm. if you're on the outside of the mainstream. If we were talking about emissions reductions and 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 solar panels and Tesla's, we'd probably do a lot better right but um Yeah.
0: And for a young person?
1: And for a young person. uh, So we've worked with a couple of groups of young people and um, most of them want to go to college. And to that, I would say, what for? (laughs) The, The crisis is now, it's not gonna wait until you graduate. If you can address the crisis, then you can go to college. There is um, the Citizens Conservation, Civilian Conservation Corps from from, uh, the the New Deal age Mm -hmm. um, had hundreds of thousands, at that point it was young men uh, going out and and restoring land that had been destroyed and had been dust-bowled and all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, there are some Civilian Conservation Corps equivalents at the state level. There's one in Vermont that I know of. There's one in California. You go to the California's homepage. Um, it's great. It says, um, low pay, miserable working conditions, and you'll love it. Something like that. And and, and kids do. I mean, they get all these skills and relationships and learn about nature and, and that sort of thing. Uh, we need lots more of those and we need the young people to be actively part of building them so the kind of political stuff that the sunrise movement is doing is great but it's just picking up on a body of work from their elders what is really needed is for young people to do some pioneering yeah. on on how to make the earth a livable planet again For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.